Welcome back again to Plato's Cave. This is the second part of the episode in which I give an idea of what this podcast is about, but also how you can work with it. Previous part I ended with a summary of Plato's Cave. Now let's go through the episode so far with this in mind. I also said that even though the episodes are about different topics, they're actually meant for you to study something that you are interested in. But of course, I don't know what is interesting you at the moment. So let me just show with an example how you can take one topic and listen to the episodes with this topic in mind and to study it. Let's take climate change, because I think that's something that almost anyone is busy with in some way, even if you think that it doesn't exist or that it's not important. Well, probably then you get frustrated that people speak about it so many times. But also something you could approach in any number of angles. You could approach it in a scientific way, a philosophical way, an artistic way, a political, economic, while the list goes on. There are 11 episodes so far. In episode 2, I spoke with philosopher Johannes Niederhauser about philosophy and truth. We mainly discussed Heidegger's interpretation of Plato's allegory. And I wanted to start with this episode exactly because it's very critical of the way Plato's allegory is usually interpreted. A first reading of the allegory could give the impression that Plato is talking about two separate worlds, the shadow realm on the one hand and the world at the surface at the other hand. And indeed many have interpreted the allegory in this way. For instance, the Christian idea of the wretched earth below and the heaven above. But also look at the Matrix, the, the movie The Matrix, where there's the, the Matrix, the computer simulation, and then there's the real world. And in our society, we often see this idea that there's a strict division between the objective truth and false appearances. Uh, also, of course, in climate change. There are many people who claim that they're absolutely certain about it's this way or it's that way. And they would say that the other side, well, they must be living in an illusion. Well, Heidegger challenges the notion that reaching the truth is a one-time deal. We climb up, we see the truth, and that's it. No, it's not like that. Even though many people in history have felt that way, that they have a unique claim to the truth. These could be religious leaders, or political leaders, but also scientists. But people who go more deeply into spirituality or politics or science know that that's not how it works. The allegory as I see it is a journey that must be taken again and again. If we think about climate change, we could relate it to the mindset that some well-meaning people have that we can solve it for once and for all. There's the idea that we just need the truth the objective science, and then we just need to find a technological solution, or maybe we already have. But instead, we could look at the truth not as something that is out there waiting for us, but something that is already there and revealing itself. So the question then becomes, what is the climate crisis revealing? And how can we address that which it is revealing? For instance, what is it revealing about inequality in the world or about politics? And how can we address that? 
So you see the difference. If you think about climate change as a problem for which we need a technical solution, then you don't really have to think deeply about yourself or about society or something like that. You just basically need to throw a lot of money at it and then have the political will to adopt that solution. Okay, this might solve some of the issues, but it doesn't solve the cause of it, which is our presence on this planet. And anyway, I'll get to that in, uh, in uh, episode 11. In episode 3, I spoke with Mika Ball about art and urgency and internship. Well, internship, it's a, it's a strange word, but it relates to interdisciplinary, like interdisciplinary philosophy. Intership is the idea that you draw on many different disciplines to understand something without having to become a full expert in these disciplines. So you dip in and out and you do take it seriously. You do study it and you do spend serious time on it. But at the same time, you're not planning on staying there or getting a doctorate in this field. It's also the idea that you can never do justice to something in the real world if you only look at it from one perspective. For instance, if you look at an issue from only an economic perspective, you can never do justice to the issue, whatever it is. But neither can you do justice to it if you only look from a psychological perspective or only a spiritual perspective or only a sociological perspective. Like I mentioned before, Mika talked about the combination of discovery and recognition. So if you discover something new, that new thing also provides you with a new perspective on something that you already know. So it may help you to discover something new about something that happened already, even something in the past. And at the same time, you can recognize something of what you already know in that new thing. For instance, you can recognize yourself in a person you just met, and this can be the beginning of a dialogue. And in this dialogue, this person may say something that maybe provides a new context or a new understanding for something that happened to you in the past. Well, we can think of the episode about trauma as well, which relates to this. And this may be also something that happens in therapy. But we also talked about the figure of Cassandra, about the difficulty of communicating urgency. Cassandra was a figure from mythology who got the gift of being able to foresee the future, but the curse of never being believed by anyone. For decades already, climate scientists and those who have taken science seriously, they've been communicating something very urgent, but it still does not translate to the degree that it should. And one of the ways in which we can address this is through art. Just think of the movie Don't Look Up that just appeared on Netflix. That movie is a kind of satire and satire is a kind of art. Watching that movie is, for instance, a way that you can think about the climate crisis. But the movie is not actually about the climate crisis. But it gives you a kind of dialogue or counterpoint to think about it. And of course, that movie is all about urgency. In episode 5 about geology with Marsha Björnerud, we spoke about the idea of timefulness. Marsha described some of the history of geology as a journey through the cave. In this case, the journey through Plato's cave literally makes us understand more about caves. 
So the journey of geology makes us understand more about the planet that we live on. But in order to understand more about this planet, we encounter these unimaginable numbers. The age of the Earth, uh, the size of the Earth, the complexity of, of all these geologic processes and the way they interact with biological processes and with the atmosphere and everything like that. It's really, really complex. But the idea that Marsha brought back into the cave is the idea of timefulness. It's the idea that in order to create a healthy relationship to the earth that we live on, we urgently need to transform our idea of time. We can look back in the earth's geologic past and see a story of many climate crises, And we can see what we can learn from them. Of course, one thing we learn from them is that the earth will be fine. But some of the organisms that lived on the earth at that time, <laughs> they didn't survive that. But what I also learned from this episode is that I was still living in a shadow world with regard to the climate crisis, seeing it as something urgent, but also as something that is still in the future. Something that we need to prevent and maybe we can prevent it, but it's still not there. Instead, this is now, at least from a geological perspective, very much our reality, which they call the Anthropocene. This might be a case where the light of the sun really hurts our eyes and we want to flee back to our safe seat in the cave. But if we give it time and attention and let our eyes get used to the light, I'm sure that we will see many possibilities. I think we are already seeing some of these possibilities. But the main message that I got from this episode is, well, we already live in the Anthropocene, so it's not a matter of something that happens in the future. It's a matter of how we live on Earth right now. Episode 6 was, for me, the most difficult episode to do. Because it was about trauma and the Holocaust. And about unimaginable suffering. Ernst van Alphen studied what trauma can reveal about our everyday experience. By studying testimonies of Holocaust survivors. Again, we found a theme that the limits of our imagination, or what Ernst called the symbolic order, determines what we can experience in the cave. A trauma is not just a terrible event that happened to you, but part of the trauma is the inability to experience that event. Trauma is filled experience. If we relate this to the climate crisis, well, there are many climate psychologists that are saying that the climate crisis very much has to do with trauma. One of the problems that we are facing right now is that there are many people, like climate scientists, but also young people like Greta Thunberg, that have seen something unimaginable or something terrible, but they're unable to relate it to the general public in a way that it really translates into action. So, like Cassandra in episode 3, they see something in the future, but the urgency of their message fails to translate. Again, if you haven't seen the Netflix film Don't Look Up, you can watch this with, with this in mind. It also means that one of the main things we need to do right now is to expand our language, our conceptual framework, in order to be able to come to terms with the fact that we live on a planet that's evolving. This might sound strange, but I really mean it like that. Because you could say, oh, of course I know I live on this planet, and I know this. But I would say that 
we haven't really been able to express what this truly means. Perhaps you can think of this story of astronauts that they often tell that, that while they were out there in space and they look back on the Earth, they had this spiritual experience, seeing the Earth from afar. Of course, I can understand this intellectually, but I did not have this experience myself. And most of us don't have the luxury to go out in space. But I believe that we still need to create this ability to, ha to have this experience in some other way. Speaking of leaving the Earth, in episode 7 I spoke with astrophysicist and theoretical physicist Vincent Icke. We discussed the strangeness of physics and the possibility of life on other planets. What really fascinated me about this episode is that, of course for me it's easy to think about physics and think, whoa, quantum mechanics is really strange. And then Vincent replied, yeah, but all physics is strange. If you just look at a cloud in the sky and you study its movement, you know, the only reason why it doesn't seem strange is because it's familiar to you. But if you actually start to look deeper, it's very strange. I think it's like that with most things in life. We're familiar to a lot of stuff in our everyday life. But if you start to study it, and I hope that you do start to study some of the things that call for your attention, if you really start to look deeply at them, well, they will be very strange. And then you have a new kind of challenge to try to make sense of that strangeness. So it's also realizing that something seemingly simple, like the movement of the clouds, is incredibly strange. So relating this to Plato's cave, Vincent pointed out that we can actually learn a lot about the statues that are carried in front of the fire by studying the shadows. So we don't even need to turn around completely to say something about them. So we can even model them as three-dimensional objects while the shadows are just two-dimensional. So we shouldn't just dismiss the everyday world before our eyes and just focus on getting to the surface. Actually, as we discussed in episode two, the two are related. By going to the surface, you gain insight into the shadows. But by studying the shadows, you can also gain insight into what you cannot see. I think one of the problems, one of the challenges, I should say, is to have both uh, in your attention. So the challenge of being at the surface where everything is just so beautiful and so amazing is to actually remember to go back into the shadow world. At the same time, when you're in the shadow world, and no one around you believes you, and you have this memory of this beautiful experience and this knowledge that you had, well, if nothing in your environment supports this perspective that you have, it's really, really hard to, uh, to keep it alive. I often thought that the prisoners in the cave, maybe they have been to the surface many times, but they just came back, no one believed them, and they just forgot it or they dismissed it as a dream. Anyway, I think that this astrophysical perspective on the Earth and the place in the universe and the probability that what we experience here is so universal, I think it might offer us some other perspective as well on the things that we are dealing with. So one of the things I got from this conversation is that 
real astrophysics, real science, is much stranger than science fiction. If you just try to kind of imagine the scale of the universe and our place in it, but at the same time realize that what happens here is universal. So it also happens everywhere at other places in the universe. So to relate this to climate change, just think that about Marcia Bjornerud's idea of timefulness, which she bases around two different conceptions of time. And one of those conceptions is time as a story. And in order to be able to make sense of our time, we need to tell a kind of story. Obviously, there's one dominant story about climate change, that it's kind of an Armageddon, an apocalypse, a crisis, something terrible that's happening. But if we put it in a more universal perspective, we could just imagine that there are many planets like the one that we live on. And of course, many different ways in which evolution goes and probably if there's life on those planets, it will probably look very different. So imagine another few planets with kind of intelligent life, but also life that develops technology. Well, we will discuss this more in episode 11, but you could think about technology as something a child discovers, but has to learn and to master. It creates incredible possibilities for us. I mean, just look around you. Most of the stuff that you see around you is a kind of technology and it makes possible a lot of things that you're able to do in your life. But at the same time, this technology has gone out of balance with the planet at this moment. So I just like to imagine that climate crisis is one of the challenges that an intelligent civilization and a technological civilization faces. So instead of really a crisis, of course, it is also a crisis. It is also at the same time, perhaps a learning opportunity. It's a global challenge that humanity faces at this moment. And if we are able to speak to each other and think together and act on, a, on it, then just think what's on the other side. I mean, for me, it's really inspiring to think if we are able to face this challenge, what would be on the other side? Speaking of the other side or something completely different, <laughs> in episode 8 I spoke with Marike van Vught, who is a neuroscientist, a passionate amateur ballet dancer and a Buddhist in the Dzogchen tradition. I think this episode can help us to get used to the idea that we live in a kind of illusion like Plato says. But this illusion also provides the opportunity for growth. Personally, I would say that is the whole point of this illusion. But again, there was the idea that climbing up in Plato's cave is not about discovering a truth, but at least as much about seeing through the projections of the mind that is creating the world around us. It's interesting to listen to this episode in conjunction with the episodes before and after about physics. Physics is about getting to know the world we see around us, you could say the objective world, and about developing an understanding that we have of it into a more sophisticated understanding, which we call theory. I mean, a theory, you could say, is it's a story, but it's a very sophisticated and precise 
and consistent story. Neuroscience and Buddhism are about at least partly getting to know the mind and getting to know ourselves, the way our mind projects the reality we live in. Because Buddhists and neuroscientists would both agree that we have an inner experience, an experience of the world, that is completely unlike the actual world out there. The actual world out there, a neuroscientist would say, consists of molecules and energies and everything like that, but not of sounds and colors. That's something that happens in our mind. So I think these are two fundamental ways of approaching life that are both indispensable for addressing climate change. We need to develop a deeper understanding of the outside world, like the objective world, which is the world that climate scientists study, but also of, let's say, our inner world, the world of our mind. And I don't just mean the specialists who have this understanding in their own discipline, but we need to piece all of these topics of knowledge from different disciplines together. I'm not just talking about scientific disciplines, but also, as in this episode, the insights of a spiritual discipline like Buddhism, but also the insights of, for instance, a dancer. In episode 9, we returned to physics again with Vincent Icke. This time we concentrated on, let's say, the, the journey of physics through Plato's cave, on theoretical physics. Because how do you know when you're making progress, when you're going somewhere where no one has gone before? There are no road signs to tell you if you're moving in the right direction. You don't even know if you're moving up or down. But Vincent also focused on the importance of imagination, of needing to imagine the right question. Not just finding an answer to a question we already know, because we're going into the unknown. One easy way to apply this to climate change is to ask yourself, are we asking the right question? Because the future, in this case, is something completely unknown. We have very little that we can rely on in the past, at least the human past. If we want to rely on the past, we should ask a geologist, for instance, or an astrophysicist. But in our human history, we haven't encountered something like this in a way that has been recorded. So this is something we addressed in the next two episodes, but that will also go into more in future episodes. Not just with climate change, because uh, right now I'm just using climate change as an example, but you could also use other topics. In episode 10, I spoke with Dominic Petman about social media and distraction, or what he even calls infinite distraction. So this is a topic I'm still very much studying. And when I was watching Don't Look Up, I really had to think about the passage in this book. Uh, which is called Infinite Distraction, Paying Attention with Social Media. I already said a little bit about it in the first part of this episode. So maybe at first sight, there's not this big connection between social media and the climate crisis. But actually, they're intimately connected. If you watch Don't Look Up in the first act, you can watch it or rewatch it and ask yourself, why isn't the message of these scientists heard in this film? It's not because they're censored, because they're actually invited on a TV show and everything. But then I had to think of this paragraph in uh, Dominic's book. I'll read it to you. I quote, One of the assumptions of this book is that distraction itself has mutated as a phenomenon 
strategy and geometric figure. Distraction is no longer a gesturing away from that which disturbs, or that which others do not want noticed. It's not to create a distraction so that something else may slip by or remain unconfronted. Rather, the decoy itself, so the thing designed to distract, has merged with the distraction imperative, so that, for instance, news coverage of race riots now distracts from the potential reality and repercussions of the race riots. This is a more sophisticated form of propaganda than those engineered in the 20th century when the conscious decision would be made to distract from civil rights protests by screening the Miss America pageant. This new form of distraction, which acknowledges as much as it disavows, is harder to mobilize against for the simple reason that no one can accuse the media of trying to cover up the truth. Rather, incessant and deliberately framed representations of events are themselves used to obscure and muffle those very same events. End quote. This is also something that we will talk about later in relation to science denial. Um, perhaps you've heard of this book, Merchants of Doubt, which also kind of creates this strategy where you're not trying to distract from something by, by trying to direct on another topic, but actually you're talking about it a lot. So climate change on the one hand and social media and our increasing reliance on technology on the other hand are intimately connected. As an example of asking a different question about the climate crisis, if we look at the climate crisis as being fueled by technological innovation since the industrial evolution, like factories, cars, the healthcare industry, etc., what is this innovation fueled by? So, what drives this technological innovation? Why do we buy stuff we don't need? Why do we need a new phone? while our current phone is still working. That has a lot to do with desire, with longing for connection. Dominic says that one of the phenomena that we're seeing now is that the less we are able to connect intimately in healthy ways, so the more our libido cool, the more the climate warms. So it's not just that we don't see the issue. I think everyone now is aware of climate change and many are frustrated about it. But instead of using all this libidinal energy, this potential energy to fuel transformation, we use it to vent about it on the cave wall, on social media and, and in political debates. One of the inspirations for Dominic's innovative thought on this topic is Bernard Stiegler. And we briefly introduced Stiegler in this episode 10, but we really got into his work in episode 11 about biology, technology and human evolution with Peter Lemons. It's about the relation between many of the elements that I already spoke about. I just released this episode, so I won't say too much about it. But in short, Stiegler's idea is this. Just like in episode 2, we discussed Heidegger and the idea that philosophy could be a kind of therapy. Then there's the reality that we live on a planet. We live in a geosphere. This planet has life on it. And as we discussed with Vincent Icke and Marcia Björnerud, the life on the planet transforms it as well. So the connection is so close that we could say that Earth is a living organism. Another way to say that is that the geosphere of Earth is also a biosphere. If you compare this to another planet, 
we know other planets with geological activity that, as far as we know it, don't have a biosphere, but the Earth does. So, then there's the unique feature of human beings, as far as we know at least, which m perhaps doesn't say too much. But let's say it's a unique feature of human beings that we live on a technosphere. Our existence on Earth is a co-evolution with technology. And this technology in turn is affecting the noosphere, which is the life of our minds, our thinking, our theories, our science. So the noosphere consists of our desires, but also of our scientific theories, uh, our technological knowledge, our ideas about how to organize society, how to build cities, but also about healthcare, about how to communicate, how to connect with each other, and so on. So what does this mean for climate change? Well, Stiegler created the concept, an idea of where we need to go next. Right now we live in the Anthropocene, so what's next? It doesn't mean that there's a plan for how to do it, but this could be one of the expansions of our imaginations that I talked about earlier. And this is the idea of the neck Anthropocene. So now we live in the Anthropocene, Anthropos meaning human, and scene meaning, uh, let's say, the geological era in which the human is the most important influence on the geology of the planet. And the neck Anthropocene is, well, let's say, <laughs> listen to the episode, but what this means is really complex. But you can think of it as the ability to take care. Not just the ability to take care of ourselves or of our environment or of a large part of humanity that is hungry or in poverty right now, but a taking care that underlies all those examples. In episode 12, well, <laughs> I'm speaking to you. And I hope this summary of the episodes so far with the focus on climate change was helpful for you. But you could try this with your own focus. For example, uh, we spoke a lot about what is normal versus what is strange or what is mad. So maybe that's something that interests you. But it could be something else as well. And there's much more coming in 2022. We'll dive really deep into philosophy of technology and how we can create a more healthy relationship to technology, but also to ourselves and to nature. That it's unhealthy at the moment should be clear from the episode about geology, but also from the episode about social media and distraction. But we will also go into something that keeps us chained in the cave. Sustenance, our metabolism. So as human beings, we need oxygen, food and water in order to survive for any length of time in this life on Earth. But this food is also affecting our physical experience, our emotions, our thoughts, and is really important to how we organize society. Even our spirituality is affected by it. Also, of course, Plato's allegory and the episode so far have had kind of a Western focus so far. I'd really like to explore how other types of thinking and other cultures would look at Plato's cave or have their own version of it. I'm also going to experiment with new forms for the podcast. So I might do more of these shorter solo episodes and let me know if there's a particular topic that you want me to speak about or maybe you have a question about connections between episodes and I could speak about that. And also I want to do an episode with you. I'm thinking of a kind of conference or a live stream or something like that where we discuss your questions related to Plato's allegory and to the topics we have talked about in the episode. 
and maybe one of the things you could do is to give something about Plato's allegory that interests you, say why, but also how this episode that you listened to made you think about it in another way. Like I said in the beginning of part one of this episode, if you want to support this podcast, there's a lot you can do. You can share it with your friends and with your enemies. You can like episodes and leave reviews. And you can suggest platforms for me to write about this project. I'm working on a book. Actually, I should say this podcast started out as a book project. It's nearly finished, but I haven't started looking for publishers yet. So if you have suggestions or if you're in publishing yourself, let me know. And you can use Patreon or PayPal if you want to support this podcast financially. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you again next month.